Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back for another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today's episode, I'm really excited to talk about because I think it's something that most people have no idea of this concept, and it has some direct relevance to how you eat and what you eat relative to not only weight loss, but insulin levels and so on and so forth. So it's a big missing, heretofore missing piece of most people's common understanding, and it has very little to do with macros. It has very little to do with uh, caloric intake, and it has very little to do with ketones versus glucose levels. So you go, what the heck? I thought this was the keto naturopath, and he's going to be telling me neat things about ketones, and you know, I'm going to get smarter and leaner and stronger. And you are, it is, but it's not always just about ketones. Ketones are hugely important, but I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, and then I'm going to come back, even on this podcast, about ketones. All right, then. So what the heck is it that I'm talking about? Well, the big word is called incretins. Incretins. These are two hormones that have to do with your GI tract, gastrointestinal tract. And one is, and we're going to say we have two receptors. By the way, I preface everything by saying this is kind of what we know now. This will probably change in five or 10 years, but it's a big deal. And these incretins, I did mention in the former podcast when I was talking about leptins primarily and ghrelin, and all that's been new in the last 25 years. So 25 years, that's a generation. Yeah, I understand that. But um, most people still don't know what leptins and uh, ghrelin are in terms of hormones and how they affect you. So we covered that sort of to put some basic bricks of understanding in place. So now we're going to go a little bit beyond that with two more, yet two more hormones And they are all going to be below the stomach. So the first uh, hormone I'm going to talk about is called GIP. That's the acronym. And it is secreted from the K cells, which are right at the top of the small intestine, right below the stomach. And um, so the the problem with uh, terminology and calling it even GIP, there's some hormones are called different things and you just have to deal with it. So GIP is gastric inhibitory uh, protein, polypeptide, or peptide. And the other is glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide. 
So you can choose, but either way, they use the acronym GIP. So GIP, top of the small intestine. And then into the large intestine, a whole different part of the digestive tract, uh, pretty much post most of the nutrient absorption that we get from food and so on and so forth, uh, into the large intestine released from what they call the L cells. So you should be able to remember that, KL, right? L comes after K. So K cells are in the top of the small intestine and the L cells are in the large intestine. They secrete, when stimulated, a hormone called uh, G, uh, GLP, that's easy, glucagon-like peptide or protein, however you want to say it. So these are important. So one is about pretty much the glucagon and the other is insulin. Uh, it's glucose-dependent insulinotropic, meaning it stimulates insulin production to go up. And we're going to talk about how these two affect, um, or what you eat affects the release of these two different hormones. So I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a review, because I think this is really important, and I think you need to hear about it again and again, because this is useful information. This isn't just esoteric. We're not just on chapter 32 in learning about digestive hormones, and you could just move on. This is something that's going to hopefully directly affect the, how you eat and your food selections to help you be a healthier person. Okay, then. And by the way, these two hormones are really being studied by the drug companies. Duh. What isn't being studied by the drug companies? Because if they can emulate one of these, we'll get to that one in the end, and if it does the same results that's being released in various studies in terms of uh, food and dietary responses, then it could be a, a, a big, big deal. So that's how serious this is. So it's not that esoteric. And... Um, so I'm going to start talking about incretins in general. So the difference between when incretins are released or not released is illustrated really pretty well with um, understanding this. So when you have some patients, and I've mentioned this before, get a thing, get a port put in right under their collarbone and right next to their sternum when they can't eat through their mouth, when they cannot chew their food and they cannot, you know, they're just, whether it's, they've been in an accident or surgery or whatever, it's IV. So they get this thing called parenteral, total parent, uh, total parenteral nutrition, TPN. It's a little port put in. So within that, they get the fats and they get the proteins and they get the vitamins and um, different situations call for different mixes, but basically call it nutrition. Okay. So, and I don't have to go into the ratios or not totally irrelevant in this particular case. It's just that it's not going in through their mouth. It's not going in through their digestive tract. It doesn't go through their esophagus, their stomach, and et cetera, et cetera. It just goes right into their bloodstream. It's also what they call Mrs. First Pass. In other words, it just the first pass is being digested. It doesn't get released into the bloodstream. It is into the bloodstream. It gets, it gets directly put in. When I say it doesn't get released, I mean when you digest, you release into the bloodstream since this isn't in your GI tract, it doesn't get released. It gets directly inputted into your bloodstream. Okay, so what we find is patients that are on TPN do not stimulate these two hormones. Kind of makes sense. Nothing goes down the gastrointestinal tract to stimulate it. All right, logical so far. We're going to come back to this because the top hormone, remember, from the K cells are called GIP. 
and GIP has a number of functions. And initially, we, we tend to think of everything having the same sort of, uh, you know, it's either insulin or it's not insulin. Insulin is a big mover here, and of course, it, it affects insulin, but it, it's bigger than that. And that's how they discovered this through these particular patients that were on TPN. And so GIP, released from the top of the small intestine, not only stimulates increase in insulin from your pancreas, so it's a messenger that goes to your pancreas, increases uh, insulin um, creation or biosynthesis, secretion of, increases the number of beta cells, a place where insulin is produced, and it stops the um, shrinking of your pancreas called apoptosis. It also increases glucagon secretion. So it's all about get the blood sugar, get the insulin up, with it, and it also increases glucagon, which is making your own blood sugar, right, through gluconeogenesis. So that's the basic. But here's the part that has nothing to do with digestion in a way. It, it, it Because of the insulin as well, it stimulates fat cells to not only receive insulin and get bigger, but it, it has a direct effect on creating fat cells. So they call that lipogenesis, genesis being the beginning, lipo being fat. So it makes more fat. Pretty straightforward, right? Following the logic. It also has a fat, uh, has an effect on brain cells. Um, not going to go into that, but it's on brain. It has, has to do with, uh, you could say insulin, but not just insulin. It also has an effect on bone. It increases bone formation and it decreases bone reabsorption. So when you remodel bones, you're always breaking down and building up. So it's about building osteoblastic, if you like that word as well. So effect on bones. So what they found is that patients that are on TPN for days or weeks, or if they're in a coma, they're on for a long time, they get weaker bones. So their bones are just not stimulated by GIP. So the fact of eating real food, we're talking about real food, earth to you, not processed, not Dunkin' Donuts, or wherever you go. So it affects all these other parts of the body. You could say, well, what about brain damage? I don't know about that, but they definitely can measure through um, that they get more osteoporotic by not eating, which is not the same as not getting nutrition. So simply by things going down the gastrointestinal tract stimulates G. IP, glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide. Interesting. Okay, you don't have real food or you don't have food that stimulates GIP, you're going to have a bone problem. You're going to have other problems as well, but you're going to have a bone problem. So they've noticed that thing. Well, that's interesting. So it had nothing to do with vitamin D. It had nothing to do with uh, exercise. It had to do with lack of getting GIP. All right, so now at the tail end of your digestive tract and your small intestine, you have the L cells. The L cells release a whole different one, glucagon-like protein, GLP, from the L cells. All right, so what does that do? That has nothing to do with bones. That also has multi-function, but one of the biggest differences is it does not increase glucagon secretion. In fact, it decreases glucagon secretion. It increases insulin, so we have, it still supports the insulin increasing, but it decreases glucagon. So now it's going to drop your blood sugar, right? It's going to shut down the facility, the function of you making your own glucose. So 
gluconeogenesis, Genesis, right? We've said that a thousand times. So it's shutting down glucose, uh, sorry, shutting down glucagon and therefore shutting down the ability to make new glucose. Still have insulin, so it's all about storage. Drop the blood sugar, blood glucose levels, increase the insulin, which means it's going to go to muscle, it's going to go to fat cells, okay? So that's pretty interesting. So it's going to open up, it affects muscles, so it opens up the muscles to receive the glucose and increase glycogen storage and everything else. It's also cardioprotective, neuroprotective. Okay, so these are two different functions. So one overlaps. They both, so the top of the, the GIP from the K cells, top of the small intestine, increases insulin. And GLP increases insulin as well. So they both increase insulin, but the GLP, the one in the large intestine, the tail end, more or less, of your digestive tract, decreases glucagon, shuts it off, stop doing it. Stop making this stuff. Okay, now why is that interesting? Well, I'm going to jump to um, a comparison using bariatric surgery to get this point across. There's a lot of different things I can tell you about this. I'm trying to build a solid understanding before I get into too nuanced of a discussion. So in bariatric surgery, what you probably know is that they reduce the size of your stomach. That's probably all you know. Well, there's different ways of doing that. There's different ways of talking about uh, bariatric surgery. And um, so one is what they call gastric banding. Banding is putting a collar to the top, simply reduces the inflow, but everything else kind of goes down normally. The other is called gastric sleeve. They actually reduce the size of your stomach by blocking off two-thirds of it. So this is off to, it's a little bit like the uh, the collaring, the gastric banding, but it's more longitudinal versus uh, horizontal. All right. And so that basically gets rid of the excess stomach. So they were obviously for people who are morbidly obese and very obese. So they cut down the size of the stomach and so they're going to be eating less. So that's the that's the general idea. Now there's a third way called Roux-en-Y um, bypass. And what that does, it pretty much, cuts off the stomach, it doesn't kill it, it simply separates it from the esophagus. So you have very little of your stomach available to digest food. So you eat something, comes down your esophagus, they now shut off the passage from your esophagus to your stomach completely. It's not little, so it's not restricted like the other two are restricting the passage through your stomach. This is saying, now we're not going through the stomach. Your stomach won't die because it still has its own nerves and uh, blood uh, flow. So all that has not been disturbed. So it's still a healthy stomach, quote unquote. It's just never going to get full. It's going to be empty. So it continues. It makes a connection from, in essence, your esophagus, the very top of your stomach, to down, down, down to the very bottom of your small intestine. So why this is important is that it misses so unlike these other two, right? Unlike the other two that restricted the size of your stomach, it completely missed your stomach. It completely missed the top of the small uh, small intestine, which is called the pylorus, the duodenum, and the jejunum. It goes way down to the bottom of the jejunum, which is really the 
the last quarter of the small intestine. So the part is it does not stimulate GIP at all. So they now have data for that saying, you know, yep, people who are going through RUNY gastric bypass, you know, they, this, their GIP drops. It drops to about 20%. So that's a big drop. And, but the increase in their GLP, glucagon-like protein, because it still goes through the large intestine, increases by about um, 40%. I'm trying to look up the data specifically right in front of me, but it increases more than 40%. I think it's 400%. Give me two seconds. Yeah, here we go. So what they did is they measured two hours after eating what were these hormone levels. So two hours after eating on the, the GIP, remember the GIP is the top one that doesn't get stimulated, it went from, it went from, I should say partial stimulus. Um, oh, G, no, GIP went from 800 as an average. These are number of people, so I'm just numbers to you, right? to a sustained average. Now we're measuring, you know, six months into the future of this two hours after eating. So they're pretty consistent. It isn't just one time they did this. It dropped down to uh, about 200. So it dropped down to about 20%. I was correct. So the GLP, which is usually is, um, usually is about 12 as an average. I know it's just a number, just about 12, two hours afterwards is that it had a sustained level of of uh, twice that, of almost three times that, so 30. So 12 to 30, call it three times. So your GLP, the one that stops glucagon production, and your GIP, your GIP. Um, and so to make a long story short, is that what they found is that people who had the gastric ruin bypass, one of those three different types of bariatric surgeries, lost weight a lot faster and they kept it off for a longer period of time. Interesting. And so why was that? Primarily they're saying, let's reduce it down to what we can know, is because it didn't stimulate the GIP. It didn't stimulate the receptors. It also stimulated insulin and glucagon and all the other things and bones. I mean, they... they they ran it, you know, they had other problems. Bariatric surgery is not perfect, by the way. And you do have to take a regime of supplements afterwards and you have to change your diet. So it's not a perfect, it's just about losing weight and does reduce, it does um, reverse diabetes sometimes permanently, but you, in all cases, uh, immediately. And then depending on what the person does, it doesn't last or, or whatever. But in those side effects are bone problems, mind problems. And so they try to compensate it by putting stuff in the food that you're eating. So it's not a perfect picture. But the ones that got the ruin why always had their glucagon sort of shut off, if you will, when they ate. So that was a good thing. So they were, as much as they were producing insulin, and insulin is about storing things into muscle and fat, they lost fat and kept it off for a longer period of time. So it's pretty interesting. So that's how these two different areas are getting to be pretty much identified. And this is also why drug companies are going, hey, can we like figure out how to come up with something that's a glucagon-like protein, so the GLP? If we can make 
something just like that, and people will take this pill, and they'll take this pill, and they'll turn off their glucagon. It's funny how glucagon is this theme here, and yet it's not a test that many physicians take. A little bit of an aside, but I do. And so they're trying to copy that, patent it, and therefore you take this pill that turns off your glucagon, boom, and then you'll be losing weight more permanently. So that's the game plan there. However, there are problems. You know, when you just take a pill, that one pill just doesn't do one thing. So it's not out of the not out of the factory yet, and they got a lot of work on it. But um, you might say, for those who are thinking through this, is like, wait, I've been paying attention to enough of your conversations, and you're all over Google Gun, and good for you. Um, but you also said that metformin, per your knowledge, decreases glucagon production. Uh, that's true. And I do have documentation of at least one person that absolutely metformin does do this along with uh, berberine to an extent. So why don't they just stick to that and they'll drop their glucagon? Well, two things on that one. Uh, one is uh, metformin has long since been a, uh, it, the patent has expired. So nobody's making money on that really. And berberine is from a plant and there's a lot of different plant sources. It was big in Chinese herbal medicine, by the way. It's when I had first heard about it. And also obviously in naturopathic medicine, but it comes from a plant and therefore it is not patentable. So the reason you don't, you're not going to hear much about metformin and or uh, berberine is because they're not patentable. That's kind of like if chamomile is right up there with valerian, uh, with um, benzodiazepines, you wouldn't hear much about it because it's not patentable. Sorry to say that, not being cynical, I'm just telling you how it is. So that's why they're after something patentable that can turn off your glucagon, and it has to do with GLP, glucagon-like protein. All right, so now that's the technical part. Now let me get you back into how is this relevant and how is this even natural? Um, is It comes down to this, and they're saying that, hmm, so to review, the people who get the food directly into their bloodstream through a TPN don't hit either these receptors and they just are ignored. And um, what I left out is, and I put this in the Facebook group, is that when they have the, the sugar, the carbs put into the TPN, yeah, your insulin does go up, but it doesn't go up by much. It's a pretty gentle slope. In skiing terms, barely a mogul. Okay, so then when people, let's say you ate that same slurry, you ate that same slurry that has, yeah, the fats and the protein, so on and so forth, you put it all together and they go, bang, wow, look at the insulin response it created. Huge, huge difference. So just going down the gastrointestinal tract, just hitting these two receptors in the top of the small intestine and the large intestine caused this insulin spike or caused this insulin reaction. I shouldn't say it's spike. Maybe a spike, depending on what you've eaten. So that's dramatic. So, wow. So if you were to give that sort of glucose tolerance test orally, meaning through the mouth and not orally, guess what? You'd have the same reaction. You'd have almost very little insulin spike when you put glucose directly into the bloodstream. And then when you give glucose for somebody to take by mouth and to measure their insulin glucose, glucose levels. Interesting that. Well, there's th that graph is really, and hope you see a graph that is a large 
rise and fall and a very small rise and fall and the different and specifically about insulin levels that large rise and fall and you can color that in the difference between those two graphs if you color that in that whole thing is what they call area under the curve or AUC so area under the curve of insulin so think about if one lived a whole lifetime on TPN now we're getting rather fictitious but that uh, that person would not get that insulin rise. And so there's a concept, and in, there's a lot of agreement around this too, is that your lifetime exposure to insulin, so your area under the curve of your total insulin exposure in the course of the day, so you think of how many meals you've had, and if you're sort of, sort of to look at just your rise and what level your insulin is, that would be a factor. So keeping it very low would mean you'd have far fewer diseases and conditions and you go all the things that are relative to metabolic um, syndrome, right? Not only just weight gain, but various cancers and various disorders. Um, We've talked about that in the past as well. So that would be the big difference. And so keeping your insulin levels down is a big deal. All right, then. They say, well, obviously it's pretty artificial. I certainly do not plan to be hooked up to TPM for the rest of my life just to keep my insulin levels down. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's it's pretty artificial, but it gave you a pretty visual black and white understanding of what this is about. Okay, so how does this translate into food? All right, now we come into let's we're going to talk about plant food generally because it's just easier to talk about. So plant food, which we know are carbs, and they're certainly there's proteins and so on and so forth in there, but mostly it's just about carbs. There's very little in the way of fat in plant foods. Uh, there is some fat. There's, you know, there's fats in a lot of seeds and so on. And um, but we're, for the most part, let's, let's say we're talking about wheat or sorghum or rye or corn, all grains. We have a, we have a, a bowl of wheat. And we're going to keep it simple. Today's wheat, it's organic. It doesn't have all this other crap on it. It's just that. Okay, well, how wheat was originally ingested, now we're going back 10,000 years ago into the cradle of civilization and the idea, this is where agriculture first got started and soon thereafter, dairy and animal husbandry was part of it as well. But in this case, it's just the grains. So the grains are there. You know, when if they're eaten straight and dry, it's going to be pretty hard to digest. Um, and not many people eat it that way. Um, also, you, they boil it, it gets softer, and that's like bulgur. So you're having a whole grain, but you're really not refining it much. So in that bowl of wheat um, that's eaten, we're now going to take that same bowl and we're going to pulverize it. We're going to mash it. We're going to blend it up. Whether you put it in a Vitamix or wherever, we're going to turn it into a powder. So we haven't removed anything. So I'm not refining it. I'm just pulverizing it down to to a powder. So the whole thing's turned into a powder. So calorically, it's 100% uh, the same number of calories. It's 100% the same kind of macros. Primarily, it's carbohydrates plus the plant fibers and so on and so forth. So now we are going to give it either to you sequentially or you can give it to two different people. Best to give it to you because, well, the same person. So you now have your we'll call it bulgur, and we measure your blood glucose. 
and we go, okay, now we measure and we measure your insulin levels. And we find that, yeah, your insulin did go up. You're not like a TPN person, but it went up some. It didn't go up a lot. And now we give you the same serving size by calories, by macros. It's in powder, so we mixed it with water and so on. Maybe we made it into a bread, but it was all exactly the same kind of, you know, we haven't changed anything. Just the pulverization, just the processing. Now we go, wow, look what happened. It just increased your, your insulin was maybe off the chart. There's that dramatic difference. So what I'm trying to say is, I'm using the word in quotes now, air quotes of processing. I'm not talking about chemicals and all this other stuff, which is also part of modern day processing of food, just the pulverization. And what it does, it speeds up the absorption of that food. And one way of going, yeah, all right, I'm following you so far. It's not like a real uh, a real big issue. Well, it actually is a pretty big issue because most people just talk about their diet, either A, in terms of calories, or B, in terms of macros. And I and even when we work with people, we have them, you know, well, first of all, they write out what they're actually having. So we see what the actual food is that they're having. But it is something that breaks up their macros. It's a, it's a nice way of having people to start think about what they're eating. However, in this particular regard, just the uh, pulverizing, just the increasing in absorption suddenly changes the person from just having a meal to now they might even be gaining weight. So for the same meals, the same macros, the same calories, one can be a weight gainer, or you now can be a weight gainer versus uh, maybe even weight loss or just weight neutral. So this idea of speeding up the absorption, speeding up the absorption, and the unprocessed, the unpulverized, the unblendered, uh, uh, however you want to say it, the unsmashed, uh, the raw but boiled or, or cooked, um, is considered slow. So when we hear about slow carbs versus fast carbs, what we're really talking about are processed carbs, uh, processed foods, just on this one level. So this one level has existed for many, many thousands of years, right? There was a grinding for you make your tacos and you make your bread, you grind it up, but they don't take things away from it. They don't refine it. They just grind it up. So they sped up the absorption of that. And consequently they sped up or they increased the levels of insulin. Now, if you think of insulin, and I mentioned this before in previous podcasts, insulin is the it really helped you survive. It helped you store energy. So when you didn't have the food, you could live off of yourself. So you could walk a long distance. You could hike, you wouldn't, you know, you had kind of like a Tesla. You could go weeks, ideally, perhaps even months. We'll go with weeks, weeks without eating anything. So that was the benefit of insulin. It allowed you to store things. Without insulin, you wouldn't last a day and you'd always have to be worried about eating um, many meals a day. So the fewer meals you have, the fewer, the less often you expose yourself to insulin. Makes sense, right? It doesn't have to go up. It doesn't have to come down. So on that idea of comparing uh, your, in this imaginary sort of lifetime exposure to insulin, you've now dramatically reduced that. So when you have fewer but larger meals, maybe a meal a day or two meals a day, that's a far cry from six meals a day of your insulin spiking up and then having to come down. So uh, larger meals are better than, so larger meals are better than smaller meals. 
to an extent, but it's more that fewer meals are better than more meals. And I'm not just speaking calorically, I'm speaking only from the uh, perspective of insulin being jacked up. Okay, so now we found that, so that's a concept. The concept is slower carbs versus faster carbs. What you're really talking about is the processing of. All right, let's move off to proteins. If you did that with proteins. So if you did soy and you pulverize it, or if you hydrolyze it, right? You can buy soy powder that are hydrolyzed. You can buy whey. As we know, whey is a little bit different because whey is a byproduct of cheese making, uh, which means it was acted on like something else that doesn't exist in the world. And that came from dairy, obviously, right? So, um, but when you pulverize these, you make them and you can hydrolyze them, which is even more, you increase their absorbability and therefore you increase their insulin kick. And um, certainly some of it goes into certain, as you know, proteins can go into glucose or gluconeogenesis, depends on the proteins. We talked about that before. But as a generalization, they all will increase your your insulin. Whey will increase it the most, by the way, because you're waiting for that one. But the pulverization speeds up the absorption. The speeding up the absorption increases your insulin. What is the insulin? The ins- insulin increases up your weight gain. So for the idea of your smoothie is always going to make you fat. If you just didn't blend whatever you were going to eat, if you just didn't blend it and just had it as a whole food, you wouldn't get that weight gain, right? It's like those two bowls of wheat there, one blended and highly absorbable and the other not. So by not doing a blender drink, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. In fact, when my brother was, uh, when I was working closely with my brother, I did have him blend up a lot of his his veggies. I was thinking about getting antioxidants and thinking about getting all the other phytonutrients. That's why I thought then those are not bad thoughts, but I think that's, that's a little bit simplistic now. So, um, but I was jacking up his insulin. Boom, 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 boom. Not a smart thing to do. I should have said, Hey, can you just, let's eat a salad as best we can. And, um, so I think that was a detriment, especially for one that was an immune repaired but it's also a detriment for all of us. So it speaks to, when we talk about whole foods, I know it's a store chain now, but when you think of eating whole foods, it's a reason of eating whole foods doesn't affect you as much as when you pulverize it, powderize it, hydrolyze it. And so you've got to know the difference between slow carbs and fast carbs. I don't have much in the way of carbs at all now. And so that you can just Forget about carbs, but it also applies across the board. So what would be the worst combination that you could possibly have? Now that I talk to you, just pulverizing everything and making it highly absorbable, that's a bad thing, right? As a general comment, well, it ends up, you know, you have certain combinations of things that can make matters even worse. And so um, what worse could be is that, um, let's say we're back to powdered protein sources, all right, powdered protein sources. If you just took protein on an empty stomach, for the most part, it would not increase, it might increase your glucose a little bit through as, you know, through making a gluconeogenesis a little bit. That's how we've seen it with our CGMs. But if you were already had a fairly high, you're having a lot of carbs, so you're already having your, 
don't know, potatoes or starches and so on and so forth, we're talking about a normal person now, and you brought in your protein, you were going to get a kick. It would kick up your insulin even more. Okay, there's that combination. So protein with or without glucose is a big difference. The other is if you were to have fat together with pulverized carbohydrates, highly absorbable carbohydrates, that would really kick it up. And you go, why would that be the case? Well, that really doesn't exist in nature. You know, there's no such thing as a lot of fat with highly refined, I use that word wrong, don't want to say refined, highly pulverized, highly absorbable carbohydrates. If you find any fat, so let's say, well, I heard, you know, avocados have fat and carbs. First of all, they don't have a highly pulverized, highly absorbable carbs, and they don't have many carbs, but they do enough. I mean, you can increase your blood sugar on uh, avocados and they have fat. That's a whole different combination. Generally, you it is impossible to find. You do not find highly absorbable, we're going to use the word processed now, carbohydrates with fats. So now let's go into the real world. You go into McDonald's, you go into a pastry. These are or a pastry shop, a bakery shop, or wherever, what you're finding is a croissant that's high fat with highly refined uh, carbohydrates. So what do you think that's going to do? It's going to kick up your insulin. It's going to go directly to fat, to weight gain. So that's a deeper understanding of not so much the macros and not so much the calories, but the ref- the processing of the carbs with the processing of the fats, you know, as the top of the list of so you could say, well, there's things like ice cream and you bet and, and pastries and so on and so forth. So I hope that helps you understand. And um, so the area under the curve for insulin times a lifetime. So one way to reduce that is having fewer meals. So it used to be that it was considered a good thing to have, you know, to graze, to snack, you know, having, no, that's sorry, that's bullshit. That's totally false, not healthy, unless you have some special health condition. And I, I, I can't even think of one right now, but there's probably some exception out there someplace. That's just not, it's untrue, incorrect. And the other thing is uh, they did an experiment. This is relative to this in Japan in which they gave, you know, carbs, then fats, then proteins, and they re- reverse the orders and said, all right, well then have protein first, then carbs, then fats, and then have fats first and proteins and carbs and all the possibilities. And what do they find? They find that they're worst possible. So if you're having, if you've ever been to Japan, they have a lot of rice. They have a lot of white rice. So white rice is pretty much a refined, nearly pretty, there's that word again, <laughs> processed. You know, there's, it's a pretty high glycemic food. Could be worse if they pulverize it. Uh, rice powder. But if you have your carbs first, refined, we're going to say partially processed slash refined carbs first, that's going to jack up your glucose, followed by either fats or proteins. But when you change the order and have your carbs last, so they say they had their protein, they had their steak, what would their fat be? Their fat might be, well, the fat on the steak. And then they had their carbs, your glucose, sorry. Oh yeah, your glucose didn't go up that much. Uh, your insulin didn't go up that much. So your food order sequence is important as well. So if you're going to have carbs, have it last. So it's really interesting. In France, well before, even though we think of France of 
desserts. I was about to say, we don't think of desserts so much, but we do. French desserts and the flambeaux and the pastries and the chocolates and so on, is that what they would have is their salads last. Whereas the United States, most people think of, or many places in the West, they think of having their salads first, their carbs. And that's a whole food carb. So it's a whole different thing. But still, it's their carbs first versus their carbs last. Made a significant difference. Um, Interesting that. So I think you've come away with some usable information about uh, really whole foods. The idea of slow carbs versus fast carbs. When people are saying slow carbs, they're probably talking about things like salads. When we're talking about fast carbs, they're talking about things that have been pulverized, highly absorbable, slash processed, slash refined more than likely in this culture. Um, but that that also can be, so if you're, uh, it was very popular for a while to have smoothie drinks. Oh, I'm, a, I'm, on the, I'm on the road. I'm going to make my smoothie drinks. So you blend it all up and now you've got all these goodies in a, in your little jug there and you're going to drink it through the day while you're driving or whatever. Um, all right. Well, it's, it's, it probably kept you from having worse things, right? Kept you having, from having donuts. But the idea, if you actually ate food and didn't eat food for a while, and then you showed up at your next food time and you pulled out your chicken wings or whatever it is you're having and had that, um, that would be in, 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 in a day comparing two different ways of, you know, having blender drinks versus not having blender drinks. And if you had an isocaloric, so they were the same, one would be weight gain diet and the O would be a weight neutral or weight loss diet by having whole foods. So I'm going to end on that. I think it's very important. So I want you to have the visual in your mind of area under the curve of insulin. That would be the comparing the curve of the TPN person, right? The insulin didn't go up much, small mogul versus big mogul of one who ate the glazed donut or the curler or whatever, because that was a fast carb. That was a, you could use the word refined and processed for that one. And that general concept of eating fewer times, eating whole foods, um, and eating larger meals. I mean, you, you obviously being larger meals if you're not grazing throughout the day. So we will continue with that because this is in the context, I've sort of left the cancer sequence back a little bit because I really had to come back to talk about food because this is very important. This would be, I would be having these same conversations with cancer patients. They need to understand the concept of why they're going to eat a certain way. It does make a difference. So if you're a cancer patient, you need to think about how do I get my insulin down in a comfortable way long-term? This is obviously all about that. You also need to think about how you get down your uh, growth hormones, meaning IGF primarily long-term. And so we'll go into that. And, and, you know, these are things that are pro-cancer and obviously the ketogenic diet, which is dropping carbs completely, puts you in primarily into ketosis. That's a good thing, but you needed to have this food conversation. So it is also very tightly related to cancer. That is cancer therapy, supportive oncology. How's that? Till next time. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, 
And if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.